If you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn to Acts chapter 4 and John chapter 13. Today we are wrapping up our series, Bold. And the idea behind this series, we've been going through and looking at uh, for us to live the life that God has called us to and for us to do the things that God has called us to do, it requires an element of courage and fearlessness and determination to do that. And when we look at the way that the early church started, we see that before Jesus ascends into heaven, he creates something. He, his, he didn't finish his work that you know, he intended to do on the face of the earth just in the three years of his ministry. He did everything he was supposed to do, but it was never supposed to end. And so to keep his work continuing throughout all generations until he comes again, he created an institution to ensure that the ministry would continue. And what he created was the church. And the church isn't a denomination, it isn't one certain group of people. The church is the, uh, the community of all of those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation and made him the Lord of their life. They've made him the king and they've submitted their will to his and said, Jesus, I make you the one who is the authority over me. And when you make that decision, you become a part of his body, he calls it. And that's what the church is. We are the body of Christ. And when you become a part of that body, I remember when I made the decision to follow Jesus, I still looked an awful lot like Jeremy. There wasn't much difference. I prayed a prayer and made the decision, and I pretty much was exactly the same after that. But when you make that decision, God gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit. That his presence and his power actually comes inside of you, takes up residence in you, and begins to change your heart. See, when I first made the decision to follow Jesus, there wasn't a whole lot of difference between how I used to be and how I was at that moment. But over time, I began to change. And I don't look a whole lot like Jesus right now, but I look a whole lot more like Jesus now than I did then. And I'm looking less and less like Jeremy all the time. And thank God for that, because he was kind of a jerk. Uh, if I don't even like that old me, you definitely wouldn't like him. But not only does God begin to change your heart and to transform you, but the Holy Spirit in you also empowers you to continue to do the same things that Jesus did. When Jesus was here on the earth, he was operating out of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That's how he had supernatural wisdom. That's how he had words of knowledge. That's how he had prophetic words. He would heal people. Uh, you know, all kinds of just miraculous things occurred as a part of his ministry. And that was all because of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in him. And the Holy Spirit also empowers us to continue that same ministry today. It's so vitally and hugely important. And that's why the disciples pray and they say, God, would you continue to pour out your Holy Spirit on us so we can continue to do the things that you did. So that as we go out there and we preach the gospel boldly, we continue to make disciples. But not only does the Holy Spirit do that in us, and those are the two things that we tend to focus on a lot in church, is we want to be able to be transformed into the image of Jesus, and we want to be empowered for the ministry of making disciples. But there's another thing the Holy Spirit does in us that is a lot of times overlooked. And it's just as miraculous as anything else that can possibly happen. And what the Holy Spirit does in us is it begins to develop a bold unity in our hearts with all of the other believers. Yes. Now, you might say, unity doesn't sound that miraculous. And why are you calling it bold unity? And this is why. In Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35, remember they've just prayed after they ran into persecution and opposition. They said, God, we need you to come and, uh, you know, to to allow us to continue to do this because we're running into trouble with the government. And 
it says that they pray and the place is shaken and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. But then something else happens after that too. The very next paragraph says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need." That's why I said this is miraculous. That's bold unity. I mean, these people, when you're reading this, do you think these guys are crazy? They're selling their homes and they're selling their lands and they're bringing the money to the church so that the apostles can then distribute that to all of the people that have need. It says everything they have, they're not thinking of it as their own. They're viewing it as to be used for the community in which they exist. Now, for me, when I read that verse the first time as a kid, uh, growing up during the Cold War with the evil Soviet Empire threatening to attack us at any moment, I read that and I'm like, these are a bunch of commie hippies. <laughs> like, surely, Lord, this can't be what you intended for life to be like. Because this sounds like the Soviets. They're trying to get rid of our property rights and ownership. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Lord, we're in America. You better make us a new Bible. And and so I started to realize, though, is that what's happening in this is that God isn't prescribing a system of government. He's not saying that this is something that you have to do. They're all making this decision freely. They're choosing because of the unity and the love that they have for each other in their hearts, not because someone is forcing them to do it, but they're choosing to say, I'm willing to sell off these things because I love the people in my community so much that I can't stand to see them have a need that isn't being met. If I have the ability to meet that need, I'm going to do it. And that is insane generosity. Selling your house. Selling land. Now, I meet people every now and then, and they want to argue about the tithe. I'll, I'll teach on the tithe like every other year. And they'll come up and like, well, pastor, I don't believe in the tithe. That's part of the Old Testament. Uh, we don't have to do that anymore. We've been freed from the law. We live under the New Testament grace now. And I'm like, okay. I don't agree with you on that, but sure, you, the tithe says you bring your first 10% to the Lord for the use of, of the Lord's work, but you want to live according to the New Testament? All right. That's a whole lot more than 10% in the New Testament. You've got to put your house up for sale. You've got to give away everything you have. And they're like, whoa, 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 let's go back to that Old Testament stuff. I like that a lot more now. But this is what, it's, it's so amazing to see. That's why I said this is miraculous. The unity that they have is something that doesn't happen naturally in our human hearts. It's not the default way that we live our lives. It takes the miraculous empowerment of God moving on you to bring you to the place of where you have that kind of unity with other people. And some people look at this and they say, this was a historic phenomenon, this was a one-time thing, this was only occurring because of intense persecution, so they had to live this way in order to survive. But Jesus makes it very clear that instead of being a one-time thing, this was the call for us as believers of Jesus and disciples of Jesus. This is the way that we're called to live with one another. In John 17, Jesus is praying shortly before his crucifixion. And this is what he prays. And if Jesus is praying this, it's probably something you should be praying for yourself too and something we should really pay attention to. And he says, I do not ask for these only, referring to the disciples, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word, which then is referring to all Christians throughout all of the world, through all of time, that they may be one. The will of God, the thing that Jesus is praying for right before he goes to his death, is that all Christians would exist as one. One heart, one mind, one being. That's what this Greek word is getting at, is that in our, our heart, our emotions and our wills, inside of our, our intellect, our thought processes, all of that stuff that we need to be one together. Oh, that everything they had, they held in common. It says that every possession they had, that as they saw needs arise, they were bringing that to the church and that they were using these things to meet everybody else's needs. They effectively eliminated poverty in their church. Think about that. How long have we had a war on poverty in the United States of America? A long time. Poverty is getting worse. Because no government can solve a problem of the heart. No government can love you. No government can make you love someone else. That is something that only Jesus can do inside of you. That happens when we are united together as one, like Jesus prayed that we would be. And you know what? That's the kind of person I want to be. That's the kind of church that I want to be a part of. I want to live the way that God called me to live. I want to live in community with other believers, not just in my thoughts, not just in my words, not just what I get up here and say on a Sunday morning, but in my actions, in my deeds. I want those to reflect the unity that I have with the people here in Radiant Church, the church in our city, the church all over the face of this earth. I want to be someone who lives up to God's calling on my life to be one with all believers. But that's really, really hard for me because that's not the default condition of my heart. That's not the way that my culture has shaped me to live my life. We live in a capitalistic society, and I'm not saying that's wrong or right or whatever else, but there's no system in this world that teaches you to lay down your life for others. There's no system in this world that says, don't look out for number one first. That takes God doing something miraculous inside of our hearts. And this morning, as we're looking at a bold unity, and we're saying, how is it that we enter into this? How is it that we live with that kind of boldness with Radiant Church, with all the believers around the world? The first thing you have to know is that bold unity is motivated by love. When you're reading about the way that the disciples are living, and at this point, it's gone beyond uh, just a few disciples. There's over 5,000 people now that are believers in Jesus. And they have this kind of unity amongst 5,000 people, which is just mind-blowing to me. But as I'm reading about the way that they're interacting with each other and the way that they're treating each other, it sounds an awful lot like a family. It sounds a lot like what I've experienced uh, with my own mom and dad and my sisters and now even my children, is that there's nothing that you won't do for your family. You will make any sacrifice to meet their needs. You might talk bad about them, but someone else talks bad about them, and oh my goodness, all of a sudden you are their biggest advocate. Because you love your family. You will make any sacrifice. You will lay yourself down for your family. Now, I never knew how much you actually could sacrifice for your family until I had kids. 
You know, after Eason was born, the first thing I did was I called my mom and dad and I apologized to them. I said, I never knew how much you guys loved me. Like, I couldn't comprehend it before I had my own child. I am so sorry for being such a jerk. Like, I was crying because I felt so bad now that I finally understood how much my parents loved me and how mean I was to them at times. I was like, oh my goodness, mom and dad, I'm so sorry. And like, don't worry, we did the same thing with our parents when we had you. <laughs> okay. And someday, I hope Easton and Brielle give me a call and they apologize to me. But I remember before Easton was born and he was just moving around in Anna's belly and I, I loved him, but it was different because I'd never seen him, I never interacted with him in any way. It was like, I loved future Easton, I guess. And then we went to the hospital. She's in all kinds of incredible pain. Uh, wow, I never knew how much of a sacrifice women made much before the husbands do. Going through the birthing process was insane. I've never like, been really glad I was a man as opposed to a woman <laughs> until I saw my wife give birth. <laughs> and I was like, thank you, Jesus. Because <laughs> I think if men had had babies, the human race would die in one generation. We would be gone. So we go to labor, and, and the reality that begins to set in is there's the screaming, and there's crying, and, and it's just horrible, and, and she's just crushing my hand with her grip. And I'm like, I need, I need some meds, doc. Give me a spinal, because this is hurting. And then, you know, the baby comes out. This little gray, scrunched-up, squawking, alien-looking thing. But my heart goes out to him, and we're disconnected instantly. We made eye contact. And it's like, oh. You know, like my heart just started fluttering. It's like, this is my baby. I would do anything for this little guy. There's nothing. I would lay my life down for this kid. No doubt about it. And then some of those feelings began to fade. <laughs> because what happens is those kids, they turn pink. They're not always gray little aliens. They turn pink or whatever color. But they keep crying. Over and over again and all through the night, I spent three nights sleeping on a, a fold-out excuse of a bed couch thing at the hospital that was shaped like that, so your back shaped like that. And they just never stopped crying and you don't get any sleep and then you're holding them and they're throwing up on your face and like you still love them but you're st starting to cost you something now, right? And then you go home and you never knew how much diapers could cost and the clothes that they outgrow every two days. And, and then all of the vitamins and supplements and minerals that the doctors tell you that you need. And it's like, it gets expensive. The bigger my family gets, the less stuff and less money I have and the less hair I have. It's, it's stressful. It's a sacrifice to love someone. But you know what? It's worth it. The sacrifice is always worth it. Because the more I lay myself down for my wife and for my children and for my two sisters and their kids and everybody else, the reward that I get from that is greater than any sacrifice that I have ever made. And that's why we have to come back to when we want to have this kind of unity, not just with our own little nuclear families, but for us as Radiant Church, for us as the church in this world. It has to come back to that motivation of love if it's something that you're trying to force, if it's something that you're trying to do on your own, it will never happen for you. The only way that you're able to have unity, the only way that you're able to make sacrifices like this is if you have a genuine love for other people. And that is the work of God in you. Now, you guys, remember when you first began to realize how greatly blessed you were by God your Father? 
I remember that reading in Ephesians, like I prayed, uh, actually it wasn't here, it was somewhere else. I was praying, God, thank you that you've blessed me in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. I remember the day that started to really sink into me. And I saw my father, who's adopted me into his own family. I have a unity with God because he's adopted me into his family. He's made sacrifices for me out of his love for me. And now I'm blessed because of that. I don't have needs because my Father provides everything that I need for me. And we get excited about that, right? Like that's when you like hoop and holler and amen and rub it down the aisles and wave banners around because you think about that. It's awesome being a part of God's family. But here's the problem. We want to be only children. But we're not. We have a whole bunch of brothers and sisters in the family of God. In Matthew 12, it says this. This is one of those things where it's kind of like, wow, Jesus, that seems a little bit harsh, which he does quite often. And his mom and his brothers, they're coming to see him. You think, all right, Jesus obviously loves his mother. He is going to take some time out from ministry for her. And it says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak with him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? You don't see that on Hallmark cards for Mother's Day. And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. We have all been adopted into the family of God. And there aren't special positions and relationships that some of us have and others don't. When it comes to the family of God, we are all equal. We were all adopted into this family and God loves us all equally. So you know what? we had better start loving each other. Because as much as I love pouring out blessings on my children and meeting their needs, there's one thing that flips my switch. And that is when they won't share. When they say, mine. And I always look at them and I try not to get mad. I'm like, who do you think got that for you? Who, who gave this toy to you? Who bought this food that you're eating right now? This isn't yours. This is mine. And I've provided this for you because I am such a good, generous, loving father. And you had darn well better be sharing this with your brother or with your sister. Because I don't buy things just for you. I provide for the family. And if some of you are depriving each other of the things that you need, daddy is going to get mad. And daddy might take it away from you for a while so that you can learn your lesson. And this is the way that God provides for his family. Some of us, he has poured out unbelievable material blessings on. If you're an American, pretty much that's you. We have really high standards because we're always comparing ourselves to the richest of the richest in the world. But God has poured out blessings on us. But there are times when we do legitimately find ourselves in need. And that's why when we have a love for each other, there's a unity that exists and we're able to say, I'm willing to sacrifice some of the blessing that God has given me because I recognize that everything I have isn't really mine. It's not something that's my own, but God has blessed me with this and I'm going to continue to use this for the betterment of his family. Yeah. That's the attitude that we as, as Christians, as children of God, have to have with our fellow brothers and sisters. And when we don't do that, man, it tears the heart of God. 
And he's woven us together. The family that we have, people from every nation, tribe and tongue, every race, every way of life and background, we've all been knit together into one family. But when there's dissension amongst us, when we pull back from each other, when there's disunity in the family, it breaks the heart of God and it tears the fabric of our family apart. We have to have a love for each other. You say, okay, I can see that we need to have a love for each other, but man, sometimes it's really, really hard. Some people are just difficult, and that's absolutely true. But that's why bold unity is sustained by grace. It's motivated by love, but love only takes you so far because there are those times when you've lost that loving feeling. I'm on a roll today, people. I'm going to go home and listen to this one myself and laugh. Here's the thing, there's going to be squabbles in your family. You still love them, but there's times where you have to have extra grace for people. I have a cousin, and I remember we were kids, and he was standing the night at my house, and he's like, I got to go to the bathroom. I'm like, all right, cool, man, because we were sleeping in the same bed then. And he goes to my closet, and he goes to the bathroom in my closet. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, it's cool, Jeremy. This saves way more time than going all the way upstairs. Time isn't the issue here. You just went to the bathroom in my closet. And I was like, but I still love the guy. I'm still willing to lay my life down for him. But I had to extend some grace to him in that moment because I wanted to kill him. I haven't thought about that in a long time, but the Lord brought it to my remembrance just this morning as I was preparing for this message. Now, there's times when people have weird, quirky personality things. Even the apostles had moments of where they butted heads and they had to come back and say, you know what, I'm going to choose to love you, we're going to choose to extend grace to each other because unity is more important. But there are times when people legitimately wrong you. When they do something hurtful to you and you have a valid complaint about what they've done, how is it that you can love people then? How is it you can extend grace to them in that moment? And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? That's a hard verse. Because what he's saying is that what's important isn't being right or wrong when it comes to our family. What's important is whether you're vindicated or not. The more important thing for you is the unity that you have with your family. And if you get into a heated moment of where it tears apart the relationship and you don't love that person anymore, then you're already wrong even if you're right about the issue. Because the unity is more important than anything else. And that's why Paul says, it's better for you to be wronged. It's better for you to be defrauded which goes against every fabric in our being, but it preserves the unity. And you say, well, how on earth can I possibly do that? How can I just let someone wrong me? How can I continue to have grace and love for them when they've done something terrible to me? And Philippians 2 says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. A love motivation changes your priorities. It makes it so that you're not going to seek out what's best for you. 
and what your own needs are. It makes it so that you're going to seek out what's best for someone else. You're going to elevate other people and their needs above your own. You will sacrifice so that other people's needs can be met. And that's the way that Jesus loved us. See, there's never been anybody who was more wronged than Jesus was. Every one of us, it says that we were enemies of God. But the way that he responded to that wasn't through saying, look, I was right, I'm going to give you guys what you deserve now. You had your chance. It says that he humbled himself. He left the glory of heaven. He came down as a peasant and the most persecuted people on the face of the earth at that time. He was despised. He was rejected. He was falsely accused and wrongly murdered. Because what he did was he elevated our needs above his own. He put our interests above his own interest. When we wronged him, he extended grace to us because he had a love for us that was so great that he wasn't willing to let anything keep us from him. He valued unity with us more than he valued being right. He valued unity with us to the point where he would submit himself and take a punishment that he never deserved, that he never should have had. And that's the way that God has called us to love each other. When someone wrongs you, when they do something that just grates against your personality or whatever else, you have a choice. You can either despise them and separate yourself from them, or you can extend grace to them, you can humble yourself, and you can serve them to meet the needs that they have. One of those looks a lot like Jesus, and the other one does not. One of those is the holy calling that we have in Christ Jesus, and the other one is the life that we've been called away from. Number three, bold unity is centered upon Jesus. Unity is always based around something. Today we will go home, uh, we will engage in gluttony, and we will watch 53 people from each team who have a unity that is special and unique. You see, these 53 guys have been training all year. They've been bleeding together. They've been sweating together. They've been practicing. They've been sacrificing because they all have a common goal in mind. They want that Lombardi trophy. Now, these 53 guys, you take away that trophy, you take away that common thing that's drawn them together, there would be no unity amongst them. But you go into a locker room, and you will see unity inside of a locker room like you won't experience in many other places. And we as Christians, we have something that we rally around as well. Our life, our gatherings, everything that we do is centered around Jesus Christ and living the life that he has called us to live and is centered around going out and doing the thing that he's called us to do, which is make disciples of Jesus Christ. You know, there was a small group of people that moved here to Ann Arbor to start this church with me. And there's a unity amongst us that I don't have with other people because they sacrificed. We were in this together we bled together. We cried together. They moved here without jobs. I mean, we, were, we didn't have a clue what we were doing, but we had a common goal together, that we were going to plant a church. We were going to see Jesus made famous inside of this city. Amen. And that united us. But you know what? All of us together, we all have this goal that we are supposed to make disciples. We are supposed to see this world turned upside down, to see Jesus reign and to rule over all things, to see uh, healing come to the hurting and to the broken, to see Jesus do the things that only Jesus can do and to see hostages and bondage set free in Christ Jesus. 
And when we rally around this cause together, it will build a unity in us that you won't find anywhere else. When you start to bleed with your brothers and sisters, when you start to make sacrifices with them, when you're pursuing something together, the unity that you will experience will be like you've never had with anybody else in anything else. I can promise you that. It says they were of one heart and mind. Everything they were doing was focused on one goal, and that united them. And then lastly, part of our testimony, uh, bold unity is part of our testimony of the resurrected Christ. In John 13, 34 through 35, we read the first part of it earlier, but it says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In Corinthians, it talks about the spiritual gifts that we have, which really empower our ministry. And Paul says, you know what? If you go out there and you can prophesy and if you can heal people and you can speak in tongues and everything else, but you don't have love, then it's all for nothing. Because all those other gifts, someday they're going to fade away. You won't need the gift of healing in heaven because nobody's sick in heaven. But love will still exist. Love is the basis for all of it. And it's by the love that we have for one another, that's a part of our testimony of the resurrected Jesus. Because when we go out there and we tell people that Jesus was God and that he came and he paid the price for our sins, that he rose from the dead, he was our pure and spotless sacrifice, and now we've been adopted into the family of God. If we don't live like we're actually family, then we deny the resurrection. Because Jesus didn't just come to save us from our sins, he came to change us in the way that we live our lives now. And a huge part of that is the love that we have for each other. The unity that we have as a church. And when the unbelieving world looks at us and they see a love so great that we're willing to sacrifice ourselves to meet each other's needs, they stand back and they say there is something different here. Their hearts are different. God is doing something in them. You know what we are? We are the proof of the power of the gospel that work inside of us to change us. Because when someone else comes and they're struggling mightily and they have broken hearts or addictions and other bondages and they say, can Jesus really change my heart? If we aren't demonstrating a changed heart, then they will never believe that he can because if he couldn't do it in us, then how could he do it in them? But when we live the new life, when we live out the way that God has called us to, we give proof to the power of the resurrection and proof to the power of God to change our lives. So this morning, have you been loving the church? Not just this building, but have you been loving the people? Have you been loving your brothers and your sisters? Have you been elevating their needs above your own? Is there a unity that exists amongst us? Because that's what Jesus is calling us to. That's the way that we fulfill the Great Commission. It's the way that we live out the gospel inside of our own lives. And it begins with us being real and evaluating ourselves in the condition of our heart. So would you guys stand with me this morning as we pray? Jesus, thank you that you have adopted us into your own family. 
God, would you now search our hearts? Because we know that if we're going to be the people that you've called us to, if we're going to be the church that you've called us to, there has to be some change that occurs in us. And this morning, if you need God to do something miraculous in your heart, to put love in you for others, this morning he can do that. This morning, if you've been holding unforgiveness against other people, if you've been despising other people, separating yourself from other people, then this morning is the time to repent and to say, Jesus, forgive me of that sin. And God, would you do something new in my life? Would you fill me with a love for others? God, would you fill me with a grace for other people? Would you give me the ability to lay down my life for others? Or maybe this morning you haven't been rallied around the cause of living your life for Jesus and for his kingdom. This morning, be real and be honest with God because I can guarantee you he has the power to change your heart. But we don't want to walk out the same as we came in. We want to be the church. The church Jesus called us to be. The church Jesus laid down his life for. A pure and spotless church without wrinkle or blemish. A church that is so filled with love for one another and forgiveness and grace and mercy that others look at us and they say, these must be disciples of Jesus. You know, this morning, if you need God to do something in your heart, every eyes closed, would you raise your hand with me because I know I need God to do something in my heart. I want to love more. Just as a sign to say, God, that's in me. Do something inside of me. I need your work in my life. Thank you, Jesus. For every hand that was raised, God, we pray that you would come, that you would be the great I am to them. That, God, you would give them a new heart, that you would transform them from the inside out. Jesus, we're a people so desperately in need of your love and your grace and your mercy. And, God, we want to be everything you've called us to be. Unite our hearts. Bind us together as one. Unite us in heart and in mind, Jesus. Rally us around your cause and let us live out the proof of your power at work and display inside of us. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.